what sort of leader do you want? That's the question Australia will have to decide over the next year. Malcolm Turnbull, Bill Shorten, campaign for the next uh, federal election and he'll be Prime Minister. It's an important question because the sort of leader you have can have a huge impact on the people he leads. Uh, The issues at the moment seem to be company and personal tax cuts, national security, immigration, environmental policy and other things. What sort of leader do you want? Well, if the news poll surveys are anything to go by, we want... Uh, we may not want his party, but we seem to want Malcolm Turnbull uh, slightly more than we do Bill Shorten. But as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, we see Israel asking the same question. What sort of leader do we want? Uh, they've come to a crucial turning point in their history. Samuel's getting old. He's done a great job of judging and leading the people, but the same can't be said for his sons, who he's appointed as judges as well. Verse 3 says they walked, uh, they didn't walk in Samuel's ways. They turned aside to dishonest gain, accepted bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of the tribes, they're understandably worried. What's going to happen when Samuel dies and he's not around to keep an eye on his sons? Uh, The people will suffer. And so they come to Samuel and verse 5 they say, appoint a king to lead us. But not just any king, they want a certain type of king, a king such as all the other nations have. Now, you see, Israel in those days was different from every other nation around them. Every other nation had a palace and a throne and a king who wore a crown. But the closest Israel had were the tribal elders who lived in the villages and the farms that were scattered all over the country. Or perhaps it was Samuel a prophet who wandered around judging disputes between people. But there was no palace, no throne, no king. Or maybe they uh, could have looked to the Ark of the Covenant, uh, wherever that was, in the tabernacle or later at Abinadab's house at Kiriath-Jerim. There's a hint back in chapter 4 that that might be a good place to go looking for a king. Uh, Verse 4 of chapter 4 The ark is described as the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who sits enthroned between the cherubim. Now the ark was that little gold box that Moses built with the Ten Commandments inside and the lid of the box was like a throne. And that's where the king of Israel sits. Except you can't see him because he's not a human who sits on the throne. The king of Israel is the eternal, invisible, all-powerful creator God. He can't sit on a throne because the whole heavens can't contain him. That's why there's no palace and no crown. And so the ark just represents God. The elders of Israel don't just want a king. You see, they've already got a king. They want a king who will be like the nations. They want a human king is what they really mean. And here at the start of chapter 8, the presenting problem is this dishonesty and the injustice of Samuel's sons. We need a king who's not like these people. That's the presenting problem. But down in verse 20 we see what the heart problem is. We want a king over us, then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us. It's ironic really. We've just finished chapter 7 where the Philistines attacked, Samuel prayed and God went out before his people. He thundered against the Philistines, he threw them into a panic and they were routed by the Israelites. So here they are, they're asking for something they've already got. 
Actually, they're asking for something less than they've already got because these Philistine kings were actually defeated by God, who's their king. They want a king like the nations, a king who's weaker than God. Samuel reacts, he takes it personally, as if there's a criticism of his leadership. But in verse 7, God says, don't worry about it, it's not you they're rejecting. God says they're rejecting me as their king. And so he says in verse 9, listen to them, give them a king, but warn them what that sort of king will be like. And so verse 10, Samuel told the people all the words of the Lord. Here's what a king like the nations will do. He'll take. He'll take your sons. Uh, They'll look after his horses, fight in his army, plough his ground. He'll take your daughters. They'll make perfume and cook and bake. He'll take your fields. He'll take a tenth of your grain. He'll take your servants and your cattle and your donkeys. And here's the best bit. You yourselves will become his slaves. Which is ironic again, isn't it? Uh, It's God who brought them out of slavery and now they want a king and he's going to take them back into slavery. He'll be a king who will take and take and take. You might wonder how Samuel knew all of that. Uh, Perhaps he'd noticed the other nations around and the sorts of kings that they had. But there's a hint in verse 10 where he's to tell them all the words of the Lord. You see, God has already warned Israel about this and Samuel is just repeating the warning. Way back in Deuteronomy 17, Moses is getting the people ready for when they come into the promised land. And Moses says in Deuteronomy 17 verse 14, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and you're settled in it and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. God knew what they'd do and he says, make sure you pick the one I give you and and make sure he's not like this. Moses continues, the king must not acquire a great number of horses, great numbers of horses for himself. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Do you notice all the... Uh, the similarities there. In other words, make sure he's a king who doesn't take and take and take. And so Samuel warns the people, if you appoint a king like the nations, that's what he's going to do. But the people won't listen. Verse 19, they said, no, give us a king like the nations. Uh, And that's the problem. They want to be like the nations. God wants them to be different. He wants them to be holy. But they want to be just like everybody else. They're tired of being different. They're tired of being distinctive. So what about you? Do you want to be different? Do you want to be different from those around you at work? Do you want to risk the consequences of announcing that you're a Christian and that you're standing up for Jesus? Do you want to risk the anger of people when you call out dishonesty? Uh, Do you want to be looked on as weird when you act the peacemaker rather than join in with the gossip? Uh, Do you want to stand out by being thankful and grateful when everyone else is complaining? Uh, Do you want to be different when it comes to your attitude to money and possessions? 
Uh, do you want to put up with the stares of wearing last year's fashion or driving a 10-year-old car because you spend your money on other things? Things for ministry, supporting a missionary. Uh, what about your morality? Do you want to be different in the sorts of issues you speak about? Do you want to risk the ridicule of your friends when you speak up on subjects like gender identity or euthanasia or asylum seekers or abortion or divorce? God wants us to be different. But if you stand up for those sorts of, any of those sorts of areas, you're going to stand out as different and you'll attract attention. Perhaps it'll be ridicule. Perhaps the room will go quiet when you walk in. Or maybe you'll sit by yourself at lunchtime or you won't be invited to Friday drinks or it might be an aggressive response from people who think you're judging them. Or maybe you'll be overlooked for promotion or pay rises. Uh, Do you want to be different? After all, if you're not different, life would be easier and quieter. You'd fit in better. But then if you give up and you just blend in, maybe God will allow you to live out the consequences of those choices. If you want to be like everybody else, then you may just end up like everybody else. You may end up with kids who are great at sport but are not interested in Jesus. You may end up fitting right in with everybody else at work where building bigger barns becomes your priority and you're not rich towards God at all and in the end you just let him fall by the wayside. Israel decided they didn't want to be different and so God is going to cause them to live out the consequences of that and they will become like everybody else. God tells them to give, tells Samuel to give them a king and then Samuel sends everybody home. That's the end of chapter 8. As chapter 9 begins we get to see who God's choice is. His name is Saul, which means asked for. Israel asked for him and this is what God's given them. Uh, At least to begin with, he seems like the obvious candidate. He's a head taller than everyone else. Eli's sons didn't listen to him. Samuel's sons didn't listen to him. But at least it seems like Saul listens to his dad. Verse 3, he heads off with a servant looking for dad's lost donkeys. But as the story progresses, it seems like our view of Saul goes down a little. He quickly runs out, of his, runs out of ideas about what to do next and it ends up being his servant who tells Saul what to do. Maybe he's not going to be such a great king. Uh, they eventually find their way to Samuel. They, they were going to talk to him about where the donkeys were, but God has other plans. Uh, look there in verse 15 of chapter 9. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, about this time tomorrow I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people. It's interesting that while the people want a king, and while God says to give them a king, when it actually comes to it, he tells Samuel to anoint Saul as leader. It's a different word. It means something like prince or governor or captain. Sort of like a second in charge word. And that's really, that's what Israel's king should be. He should be the second in charge. Second in charge to God who's the real king. 
That's the plan. And so when Saul turns up, God says to Samuel, he's the one who will govern my people. Once again, it's not the word for rule. Uh, It means to restrain or guide rather than to rule because, you see, it's God who rules. The king will simply help the people to follow God's rule. Samuel says to Saul, the donkeys are fine, but then he offers him this cryptic comment in verse 20, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your family? In other words, Israel's, Israel wants a king and, and they're looking to you. You're the man for the job. Saul has a hard time coming to terms with it. Verse 21, I'm the, from the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. There's never been any kings before and I'm going to be the first. I'm not sure I'm up to it. And so the next few chapters, 9, 10, 11 and 12, are about laying out a series of steps that lead to Saul finally becoming king. And it seems as much as anything, it's about getting Saul used to this idea of being king. So 9, 25, Samuel and Saul have a long, deep and meaningful conversation in the middle of the night Then in chapter 10, Samuel anoints him secretly with nobody else around as the leader. That's that governor word rather than king. He anoints him with oil. The the symbolism of the oil is that God will pour his Holy Spirit onto Saul. And then he has a prophecy for Saul about a series of things that are going to happen as he travels home to prove that he's actually God's choice. It all comes true, including verse 10, the Spirit comes on Saul with power. And he prophesies and people witness it. Uh, Then in verse 17 we come to the public coronation where people actually get to find out about Saul. Uh, Samuel assembles everybody at Mizpah and as he does he reminds them that what they're really doing uh, when they ask for a king. He says, God delivered you from Egypt but that wasn't good enough. You rejected him and asked for a king. So he's naming it for what it is. You want a king, but what that actually means is you're rejecting God. So verse 20, to prove that Saul is God's choice, they they draw lots. And firstly, the tribe of Benjamin is chosen and they draw lots again and Saul's family, his clan is chosen. They draw lots again and finally Saul himself is chosen. But Saul seems to have had second thoughts. They can't find him and eventually they find him hiding under the luggage. There he is at the back, behind that box, underneath the bag and they drag him out and he's a head taller than everyone else in the crowd. And Samuel says in verse 24, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. It's one of those comments that you could take two ways. Yes, he's tall but he's also the only one that was hiding among the the baggage. There's no one like him. But nevertheless, the people like what they see and they shout, long live the king. Uh, Samuel explains to them the regulations of kingship, which probably means something like he read the book of Deuteronomy to them and all the things they were to do. And then he writes it all down for, for Saul and he sends everybody home again. Uh, Saul goes home as well. He doesn't have a palace so he goes back to the family farm. Uh, We're into chapter 11. Uh, We get Saul's first real challenge. The Ammonites attack a city. Saul hears the news 
and he cuts up his oxen. It's like blowing up your income source, uh, putting a stick of dynamite in your tractor and then he sends the pieces throughout Israel and says, this is what will happen to you if you don't come and fight with me. It's showing real leadership. He's burning his bridges because he's not going back to farming after doing that. Uh, The people answer the call. They rally round the king. Saul and the army are victorious. They deliver the city of Jabesh-Gilead. And then Saul leads everyone to Gilgal to offer sacrifices. And there's another ceremony uh, about his kingship. Uh, This seems to be to confirm him as king. He's been anointed leader privately and then publicly declared king, but now it seems like he's suitable, he's passed his first test and uh, this ceremony is about endorsing the coronation. And then uh, we move into chapter 12 and and Samuel steps up to the microphone and it feels to me as you read through it, it's got that sort of awkward feeling. Uh, The people think uh, this confirmation, it should be all about Saul, he's our victorious warrior king, Uh, But Samuel steps up to the microphone and he starts talking about himself. It's a bit like one of those awkward drunk uncle speeches at a wedding. It's supposed to be all about the bride and the groom and the lights are on them but this guy stands up and he starts talking all about himself and everyone looks awkwardly down at their feet. It's a bit like that. Samuel says, sure, there's your king. Now, but what about me? I'm old but, but check my record. I've never taken anything from you. All I've done is give. And then he adds God to the list and says, think about God as well. Verse 6, that's all God has ever done. He's given to you. He gave you Moses and Aaron. He gave you judges. And yet, verse 12, when the Ammonites threaten, you ask for a king, even though the Lord your God was king. So now, here's your king. It's not much of an introduction really, is it, for poor old Saul? Uh, Maybe at this point he feels like slinking back off to hide in the baggage again. And perhaps at this point in verse 14 we expect Samuel to really blast them. But he doesn't. Verse 14, here's God's model, he says. If you follow God's model, even with this king, things might turn out alright. God is the one who rules He's the king, Saul is the leader who will govern. Make sure you follow that example. Verse 14 he says, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, that's great. That's the model to follow. And then he warns them in the negative. Disobey the Lord, both you and the king, and you'll be swept away. Down in verse 25. There's a quick summary. That's where we're going to leave it for today. But if, you, if we look to worldly leaders, as we look around us, leaders like the rest of the nations, what we'll see is that they take and take and take. Whoever the Prime Minister is, whoever the General Manager is, whoever it is who leads, uh, human leadership is about taking. Uh, but what God calls us to do is to instead follow a different leader. A leader who instead of taking, followed the example of God himself and gave. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples, 
You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The leaders around us take, says Jesus. Their high officials exercise authority over them. They use their power for their own ends. But what does Jesus say? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave. He gave his life. He deserved to be lifted up and exalted and served, but instead he served. He died in our place. But then he calls us to follow his example and to give and to give and to give. If you want to be great in Jesus' kingdom, and Jesus actually says that's a good thing to want to be great, then it doesn't come by taking. It doesn't come by building your own empire. It doesn't come by manipulating people to get ahead. To be great in God's kingdom comes by pouring yourself out for others. By giving time, giving money, giving emotions, giving energy. Following the leader who gives but also being a leader who gives. Each of us are leaders in some capacity, even if it's just our, a little peer group of friends. If you're a worker, you, you may lead people, fathers, mothers, leaders in your family, parents, teachers. Follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of this man in a book mentioned by Tim Keller. He tells the story of a lady who'd made a huge mistake at work. cost the company millions of dollars. She was sure she'd lose her job. Uh, She went to her supervisor, um, made her explanations and the supervisor said to her, leave it with me, I'll deal with it. I'll take the blame. Uh, You were my responsibility. She was amazed. She was staggered. She kept her job. The supervisor took a hit to his reputation. She couldn't understand why he'd do that. The normal thing she'd seen in in workplaces, and probably you're the same, is that bosses are pretty quick to cover themselves, to limit any damage that comes to them. But her boss actually took the blame on himself, blame that was undeserved. Sometime later she asked him why he'd done it and he said, I'm a Christian. Jesus took the blame for me, so... I'm doing the same thing for someone else. That was enough for her to start investigating what made this guy tick and she went along to his church uh, and was finding out about the sort of leader who would give rather than take. That's the sort of thing Jesus calls us to. May we be people who know that, who experience it and then encourage others to do the same. Luke's going to come and pray for us. Thanks Luke.